when I was in seminary, I was a young believer still, and one of the things that I wanted to do was to take reading very seriously, and as a result of that, I told Megan that the only books that we could have on our bookshelves were the, the real books, no fiction books. Now, I'm recovering from that. One of the things that she challenged me to do was to read fiction to be a better preacher. She was right, as often is the case in our home. And one of the things that I've been doing over the last many years is, is reading a lot of story. And one of the ways I'd like to commend to you today to learn to read stories better is a new Bible that just came out. It's actually the biggest story Bible. Uh, it's by Kevin DeYoung, illustrated by Don Clark. This is for everybody in this room, whether or not you have children. This is an excellent uh, resource for you to be able to use. One of the things that you can do is to, to read stories like this, to just grow in your affection for Christ and learn how to tell the, the bigger storyline of the Bible. So whether you have kids at home or don't have kids at home or would like to have kids one day or used to have kids at home or whether you're just praying that you might be able to grow as a Bible reader, this is an excellent resource. We were given a copy uh, recently. Uh, we were reading at our dinner table. If you don't do family devotions or if you just don't do devotions in your life at all, one of the things that you can do is after you sit down uh, with, from dinner and you could just sit right there and read your Bible. So if you're struggling reading your Bible individually, if you're struggling reading your Bible with your family, you can just eat your meal, read the scripture. Sometimes in our home, it takes about five to seven minutes, and that's with an incredible amount of chaos that is going on as we're doing this. So you have kids dancing, conducting, orchestrating, somebody's throwing something, but as that's happening, we're reading stories like this. The Bible is a big book, an old book, and the best book. Every bit of the Bible is inspired by God. Every bit is for our good, and every, every bit is, in the end, about Jesus Christ. The Bible is filled with many stories, some sad and some scary, some happy and some holy. These are historical narratives, theological discourses, legal codes, list of names, land allotments, poems, prophecies, parables, letters, songs, lots of styles, and lots of stories. But ultimately, there is one story, and it's a true story right down to the smallest details. The one story is the biggest story, and it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the one that the Old Testament foretold, the seed of the woman in conflict with the seed of the serpent, the seed of Abraham, the descendant of Judah, the star from Jacob, the scepter from Israel. A prophet like Moses, a royal son, the son of David, the son of the virgin, the light to the Gentiles, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, anointed with the sevenfold spirit of God, the revelation of the glory of the Lord, the son who comes out of Egypt, the ancient one born in Bethlehem, a speaker of peace to the nations, whose rule shall extend from sea to sea, the God of justice, and the Lord come to his temple. Jesus is the one that the New Testament makes clear is the Messiah, the son of man, the exalted Lord, the word made flesh the heir of all things, our God and Savior. He is the theme. He is the goal. He is the good news. Jesus Christ is the Son of God to save us from our sins, the snake crusher, to bring us back to the garden. When we turn our attention to the Bible, we turn our eyes to Christ. And when we read good books that teach us about the best book, hopefully they can open our eyes to see Jesus too. That's what this book is all about. Perhaps you're struggling with your own devotional time and sometimes making sense of the Bible. One of the things I'd encourage you to do, and there's no shame in doing this, adults in here, is just get this book and read this book of the Bible and just learn the broader storyline of the Bible. So I commend that to you. That has nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to recommend that. That's free today. Not that copy of the Bible. That's mine. You have to pay for that. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open to First Peter. 
1 Peter chapter 3. If you are a guest with us, we've been studying through 1 Peter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Peter to churches. And as he's writing to them, we've been learning what he's been teaching them, this, the suffering church. We've been moving through this letter, and now we find ourselves in chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to see a Bible underneath the seat in front of you or near you. Just grab one of those, open it up. We'd love for you to follow along. And probably the most helpful way to listen to sermons here at this church is to keep it open the whole time so you can keep referring back to what the Scripture says uh, in there. Because what we do when we preach in this moment is to actually point to what is in the text. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And we pray that you would help us as we now turn our attention to study it. We thank you that we have been able to learn from it already in this service, calling us to worship, exhorting us through the readings. But we pray now as we submit ourselves to it, all of us together, and hear the preaching of your word, we pray that you would mold us into the image of Christ or for those who are not yet Christians who are here that today would be the day that you save them. Today would be the day that you call them out of darkness into light. That today would be the day that they call out to Jesus to forgive them of their sins. That today, right now, here in the midst of this sermon, you would do the good work of redeeming grace. We pray this, Father, together. In the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. The triune God. Amen. One of the things I prayed the most while I was in seminary is that my life would count for the hallowing of God's name. That's a prayer not dissimilar to the prayer that many of you have prayed throughout your life, that our lives would be significant for the Lord, that we would do something meaningful, something good for the Lord. Part of the reason that I prayed that prayer is probably part of the same reason you've prayed that prayer, is that you want to honor God, that you want to do something for God because you, you love God. But part of the reason I prayed that prayer as well is because I misunderstood God's grace. I really wanted to do something significant to earn God's favor. I wanted to make sure that there was reason for God to love me. So sometimes I worked too hard and played too little. And sometimes I played too much and worked too little. Sometimes I stayed up early and woke up, uh, and stayed, woke up late, stayed up early. It's the opposite of that. Woke up early, stayed up late, I found it. But I did those things mostly because I wanted to earn the Lord's favor. I did those things because I misunderstood what it meant for me to live a life that was pleasing to the Lord, seeking his righteousness, seeking his favor. And it wasn't until I began to 
learn from passages like this, that what it meant to live a life that honored the Lord was actually very simple, that I didn't have to do something significant for the Lord to take notice of me, that there were simple graces and simple virtues that I could grow in to honor the Lord in what seemed to me to be insignificant ways, if I'm honest, but had extraordinary impact in the life of the church. It wasn't until I realized that the Lord's favor rests on those who are righteous in their relationships with those in the church, in their relationship with those outside of the church, because they are heirs of blessing, that I began to do something different altogether. Three points are going to frame our time together. Notice first, our relationship with those in the church. Look with me again in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. For the last 20 verses, Peter has been giving specific groups of Christians words of guidance and encouragement in these churches in Asia Minor. In chapter 2, verse 13 through 17, he addressed Christians as citizens, and he told them how to relate to the governing authorities around them in their day. In chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, he spoke to servants, and he told them how they could relate to their masters in that day. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he spoke to Christian wives of unbelievers, and he showed them a way toward winning their husbands. In chapter 3, verse 7, he spoke to husbands about living with their wives according to knowledge, living with them in a considerate way. But now in today's text, Peter, Peter speaks to all of us as members of the church. Look what he says in verse 8. Finally, all of you. Now the entire community is addressed as the conclusion to everything from chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 7, is introduced with the words, verse 8, finally. After teaching us the good works of Christians are intended for mission, Peter actually summarizes all that he's been saying to us, and he prepares us for what follows in the letter by teaching us that the Lord's favor rests on those who are righteous. As he instructs us in how to model that righteousness and how we relate to other Christians. And just as the example of Jesus Christ in chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, animated their submission to authority, even when it was likely that they would be mistreated, so now it is the example of Jesus Christ that stimulates their life together, their godly actions as they relate to one another. The meek disposition and the gentle compassion and the loving affection of Jesus are actually the catalyst behind the five virtues Peter highlights in verse 8. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These are not virtues chosen at random for Peter. And as one pastor said, like fingers of the hand, they radiate from the center and they work together. Living like this will manifest for all the world to see the brotherly love that Christians are called to exhibit at which sits at the very center of Peter's exhortation. When outsiders look inside to the church, they should see, Peter tells us, verse 8, unity of mind. Not unanimity, but a unity. A like-mindedness that chapter 1, verse 3, gives thanks to God for causing us to be born again through a living hope in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, having a unity of mind means that we have a common understanding of how God has caused us to be born again through Jesus Christ. 
Not absolute conformity on every single doctrinal issue. Not political agreement in every single way. Not even enjoyment of all of the same recreational activities in this life. The beauty of the gospel is actually seen and displayed in the church and that we are so radically different in so many ways from what we think to what we wear to where we eat and what we read to why we love what we love. And yet, despite all of the diversity, we gather together, we unify under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Unity of mind is a common understanding of who Jesus is. He's truly God and he is truly man. And of what Jesus did, he added humanity to himself to live in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, to live a life like men and then die on the cross as a substitute in their place for their sin before experiencing the death that all men and women deserve, even burial, and rising from the dead as a sign that he exhausted the punishment that we all deserve before ascending to the right hand of the Father and sending the promised helper to us, the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Friends, if you believe that, you're a Christian. But if you don't believe that, you can believe that today. Right now, here in the midst of a service of corporate worship, you can agree with all of the Christians who are present here today by simply repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. But even as we say that, one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is what is sin? The children's catechism helps us. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and in the disintegration of all creation. You are a sinner. And you have sinned. Call out to God right now and he will forgive you. The scripture assures us that he will forgive you and that he will save you and that he will guard you through faith for the salvation that Peter tells us is ready to be revealed in the last time. But if that's still a little confusing to you and you'd like to be helped by one of the other Christians that are here today, we would love to make ourselves available to you. I'll be standing after the tunnel, uh, after the service. Many of our Members of this church will be standing in this room following the service, fellowshipping with one another. You can just pull one of them aside and simply say, I'd like to be a Christian. What do I need to know and what do I need to do? They would be delighted to speak with you and open up the Bible with you. That willingness on their part flows from the love of Christ in them, and it shines in the verse 8 sympathy that marks the Christian life. Peter tells these Christians that they are to care deeply about the needs and the joys and the sorrows of other people. Not simply as a conglomerate of individuals, but as a congregation, because as one preacher said, the love that binds the body of Christ together not only seeks the other's good, but enters into the needs and concerns of others. Fellow members of Christ Church Westchester, are you entering into the needs and the concerns of others? Are you bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ? Are you rejoicing with each other and suffering with each other? If we're honest, the former is exciting and often easy, but the latter is difficult and very messy. It is hard to mourn with those who mourn and to grieve with those who grieve and to listen intently when we don't know what to say and to ask questions to draw them out when we don't know how to encourage them. And to sometimes just simply sit there in silence 
because we don't have anything good to say at all and to cry. Because sometimes the best thing that we can do with other believers is cry. But when one member suffers, the scripture assures us that we must learn not only to minister to them, but to suffer with them in prayer, yes, but in action. Members of Christ Church Westchester, let me ask you, are you willing and are you allowing yourself to be inconvenienced for the sake of your fellow members as you enter into their suffering and sorrow with them? Brothers and sisters, to do that, we must be good listeners. We must be good listeners who ask good questions, who genuinely care about what is taking place in the life of other people around us. We must be good listeners and we must be good learners so that we learn what is taking place in the life of these people and how we might actually be able to encourage them. Not just in that moment, but in all the days ahead because as Pastor Nick reminded us, what just happened as we thought about Afghanistan and we just transitioned onto Ukraine and Russia is the exact same thing that happens in all of our lives. Somebody unburdens their sorrows to us and they share it with us. And we are concerned in that particular moment. And then Monday happens and we forget all about it. And we fail to follow up. And we forget to pray. And we never call like we intended to. And we don't send that text message because we're afraid of how they were going to receive it. When all the while they are longing for somebody to notice them in their suffering. Peter tells us that what marks the body of Christ is not only a unity of mind, an agreement, there must be an agreement, not unanimity, but a sympathy, not just a a feeling bad for other people, but a genuine brokenness. We hurt because they hurt. And in those moments, we want to take that sorrow from them, but we can't, so we help them endure and bear up under that burden as they continue to forge ahead. We must be good listeners and we must be good learners so that we demonstrate, verse 8, brotherly love. Now, notice how Peter speaks to all of these people. Churches scattered throughout all of Asia Minor, representing different congregations, and he tells them that there's something that characterizes them, that it's not just love, but it's a brotherly love. It's a familial love. There's something that they share as brothers and sisters in Christ and this common relationship that binds them together more intimately than when those who share their last name. It's a brotherly love that Peter calls us to that is more than simply camaraderie, where we smile when we're supposed to and we frown when we're supposed to. We know all of the social cues on what to do in those particular moments, but it's an intimacy that is made evident in our warm love for our other brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't look at them as obstacles on the way to the things that we want to do, but we look at them as the very family that we are required this side of eternity to share life with and to minister to. It's a love that distinguishes the Christian community. It's a love that actually makes the Christian community a people of, verse 8, a tender heart, compassionate. Compassionate like Jesus. The gospel speaks of the compassion of Jesus for the crowds, for people, not just for the crowds, but for individual people within the crowd. One of the beautiful things when we're reading through the Gospels is we see that people were not just lost in the sea of faces as Jesus ministered. He cared for people that no one would have expected him to mingle with, the poor and the needy, the marginalized and the disenfranchised, the outcasts and the awkward, 
the sick and the sorrowful. And yet he made himself a neighbor in love with compassion. Brothers and sisters, we have received the free compassion of Christ's grace. Jesus himself bore our sins and he suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. The love that he now requires of his people is not a self-righteousness or a legalistic love that is working to earn his favor. It is a love for all who are made heirs of the blessings of eternal life. And we must model our love after his love because only God's love can move us to show compassion when we see how God loved people who were unlovable. One of the difficult things about showing compassion is that it is hard to love people who are not like us. And it is hard to love people who are hard to love. And yet we are called as the body of Christ to love people who are not like us and to love people who are hard to love so that we might demonstrate the compassion that characterizes no other community on the face of the planet. Only God's love can give us, verse 8, a humble mind to do this. Now, careful readers of Peter's letter here, notice that the first and the last virtues in our list are both a compound. There is to be a unity of mind, and there is to be a humble mind. There is to be a like-mindedness and a lowly-mindedness that characterizes our life together as Christians. Or as C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all of the silly nonsense about our own dignity which has made us restless and unhappy all of our life. Humility is a virtue that Peter earned the hard way. Peter thought he was a humble person who boasted proudly that he would never deny the Lord. And it is actually those denials that shamed not only his boasting, but redirected the rest of Peter's life before he watched his Lord not only take up the basin and the towel, but also the cross because Jesus considered other people more significant than himself. God on high, stooped down low, and served people not like him who deserved to die because he considered other people more significant than himself. You. Do you consider other people more significant than yourself? Does your life manifest that you live like you consider other people more significant than yourselves? Do you speak like you consider other people more significant than yourself? Do you listen like you consider other people more significant than yourself? Are you the type of person who's always talking and never listening? Or the type of person who acts like you're listening when you're really not? Do you serve like you consider other people more significant than yourself? When you receive the emails from our deacons and deaconesses, and what you do here on Sunday mornings at the church, and the way you conduct yourselves privately throughout your lives, Do you participate in congregational worship like you consider other people more significant than yourself? Realizing that Sunday morning is not primarily about your personal faith encounter with the Lord Jesus, that you are actually here in the midst of congregational worship, serving one another as you participate in congregational worship through the amens and in the singing and the way that you listen and the way that you pay attention. Do your replies in email and text messages show that you consider other people to be more significant than yourself. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't take long before we bottom out the way that we live and realize that there are many times that we're actually not living like we consider other people more significant than ourselves. In his book, Rediscovering Humility, Christopher Hutchinson just gives us a list of things to consider. 
How can I try to resolve the office conflict in such a way that best promotes humility in all parties, myself especially? Am I open-minded enough to realize my hard work and my research may be flawed? Is looking competent more important than discovering truth? Will the purchase of this house or car or dress negatively affect my growth toward greater meekness? What can I do to guard against the dangers? Do I seek that promotion at work to better serve others with my gifts or for reasons of vanity and reputation? Did I receive my wife's correction with contrition? If not, why not? What pride in me caused me to react that way on the soccer field? What do I believe about justification and sanctification and what doctrinal approach most promotes God's glory and my humility? What sort of church polity best supports meekness in its leaders? When maxed out, should the church attempt multiple services, satellite campuses, building expansion, or church planting? How is my driving? Do I let my pride literally put others in danger? Hutchinson helps us see it's actually our pride that prevents us from seeing the grace of God in multiple areas in our lives and considering other people more significant than ourselves, from our words to our driving to everything that we do. Peter calls us to a humility that disrupts pride, and it pulls us back from self-assertion. Me, my rights, what I need, what I prefer, what I'm entitled to, because I matter. Humility will be mocked, just as it was mocked in Jesus' life. It was mocked on the cross. But Peter tells us in the same letter that it is honored by God. Flip over to chapter 5, verse 7. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, just think of the entire letter for a moment. God turns a deaf ear to the type of husband who does not live with his wife in an understanding way. And God actively opposes. He doesn't remain indifferent, but he actively opposes the proud. But notice what he says to those who are humble. He gives grace. He gives more grace. He helps us in our humility when we bring ourselves low. One of the most humbling things that can happen in our lives is actually when we tell other people that we're sorry and ask them to forgive us. Forgive us for the ways that we've sinned. Forgive us for the ways that we've acted. Forgive us for the ways that we've spoken. And the very reason that we don't do that more frequently is because we're proud. But God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, the issue is not how to relate to civil authorities or masters or unbelieving husbands or wives. Rather, Peter teaches us the Lord's favor rests on those who are righteous in their relationships with those in the church before he transitions, verse 9, to our relationships with those outside of the church. Relationships with those inside the church, you notice second, relationships with those outside the church. Look in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. 
In verse 9, Peter directs our attention to how believers should respond to those outside the church who mistreat them. Now, notice what he says. It's not a tit for tat. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay reviling for reviling. But on the contrast, and to the contrary, when people do evil toward you and they revile you, bless. Once again, drawing from the example of Jesus, Peter teaches us that we are not called to something Jesus himself did not model for us, as he tells us that those who inflict evil or hurl insults at believers should not be paid back in kind, as tempting as that might be. Look up to chapter 2, verse 23. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus not only modeled this for us and exemplified this in his life, but he proclaimed it in his teaching. In Luke chapter 6, verse 28, Jesus says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Just full stop. Would people say that that's how you treat your enemies? Love your enemies, the people you don't like the people that you consider to be in opposition to you. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now just take a step back and think about how we see all of this in Jesus' life in the Gospels. He loves his enemies by going to the cross. He does good to the very people who will betray him. He blesses the people who from the cross are railing him. He prays for them from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic as well. It is a teaching that is so foundational in Jesus' life and ministry that it actually shows up repeatedly in the writing of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. The Lord's favor rests on those who are righteous in their relationships with those outside of the church in a marvelous contrariness that pays back evil with good and insults with blessing because the believer trusts in God's justice. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 23. Now look at the back end of the verse, what we didn't read earlier. This is why we see that Jesus did this. But Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Part of the reason that we snap back with words so quickly and we retaliate so fiercely in our lives when someone has harmed us, they will never do that to me again and they will now have a reason for why they will never do that to me again is because we don't trust God's justice. Because we have mistakenly believed that delayed justice is injustice, and that because we do not see it now, it will never happen. And when we do that, we fail to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. 
Instead of insulting others or responding in kind, Peter tells us, verse 9, believers are actually called to bless, that we are to be a blessing to other people. That is, believers are to ask God to show his favor and his grace to those who bring them injury and hurl insults against them. Fellow believers, how often are you praying for those that you think to be in opposition to you? Asking the Lord to build them up, to call them to faith, to give them favor in their job, to bless their relationships with their kids, to call them to faith in Christ, to give them what you want and don't have. How often do we find ourselves praying for the very people that if we're honest, we see as enemies. Why would anybody do this? Verse 9. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Peter is not now all of the sudden teaching a works-based righteousness and of meritorious favor with God. He has been inc- incredibly clear throughout the entirety of his letter. Believers are born again to a new life by the Spirit of God, and God will preserve believers to the end. The only reason that you're a Christian is because God opened your mind to understand the Scripture. He awakened your heart to believe and respond to that gospel. He caused you to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, it is because as of yet... God has not yet removed the heart of stone and inserted the heart of flesh. And it is our prayer that God would do so. That is what we pray. God, awaken them to the realities of the gospel. But Peter is teaching that the Lord's favor rests on those who are righteous in their relationships with those outside of the church because it manifests their hope is in the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls, the blessing of eternal life. Their hope is not in the now. It's not in today. It's not circumstantial with what's taking place around them. But it is a future hope. Friends, let me ask you. Have you taken justice into your own hands because you don't believe that God will bring justice? Or have you been a blessing to others? Are you more concerned about making sure that people hear the hard words that they hear and experiencing the consequences that they need to experience than blessing them in hopes that they may receive eternal life. Peter appeals to what the Lord has done for us in order to encourage us to be a blessing in our relationships with those inside the church, in our relationships with those outside of the church, before calling us to see, third, the Lord's favor rests on those who are righteous because they are heirs of blessing. Look with me in verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. Now, if you'd like to write in your Bible, I want you to just put a box around all of the references to the the let him statements here in these verses. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter doesn't use an introductory formula here 
as it is said in so-and-so the prophet, or as it has been said by the psalmist here, but it is really clear that Peter is completely dependent upon Psalm 34. I want you to all turn with me there now. Psalm 34. Peter is dependent upon Psalm 34 for making his argument, not only citing a Bible reference to support what he's trying to teach in his sermon, but because Psalm 34 has something to say about the situation that all of these believers find themselves in. Psalm 34, verse 12, there the psalmist writes, What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Why does Peter quote Psalm 34? Because Psalm 34 focuses on suffering, and the Lord delivers all of those who are afflicted. This psalm addresses the issue that Peter's readers faced in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It reminds them and it reminds all of us that the Lord actually rescues the sufferer. The sufferer is prone to think, the Lord has forgotten me, the Lord does not notice me, that the Lord has passed over me, that the Lord does not care about me, that the Lord will not deliver me. The reason that I'm suffering is because I've done something wrong, and if I start doing right things, then I won't experience wrong things, so now I need to start doing right things or more right things and figure out what they are so that I will receive God's blessing. But Psalm 34, just like 1 Peter, helps us to see that's not the case, that many times God's people suffer. They suffer unjustly. They suffer even when they're doing right things, when they're submitting themselves to unjust and cruel treatment, when they are doing good and others are doing evil. And it reminds us now what it reminded them of then, and it reminded the people of when the psalm was written, that God will rescue the sufferers, that God will deliver them, and he will judge the wicked. But until he does, the righteous actually display their trust. And they display their hope in the Lord by turning away from evil and by pursuing good. And notice how he tells them to do it. With the words of their mouth, let them keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. By actively doing good things to other people, let him turn away from evil and do good. By seeking peace and reconciliation, and pursuing that with his, with his life. Until then, they pursue good in their relationships with those in the church and their relationships with those outside of the church because they are heirs of blessing. Peter and the psalm are not promising good days in this world because persecution and trouble are what are to be expected and characterize our life this side of eternity. We see this all throughout 1 Peter. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Peter writes, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So let the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the very next section that we're going to study next week, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ Jesus may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is, the time, it is time for judgment to begin the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter, in this psalm, are actually providing the motivation for Christians to bless those who persecute them and to live with others and pursue peace because a life of goodness does not simply happen as Christians quietly meditate in their rooms. The Christian life is not one that is passive for Peter. It is active. We devote ourselves to what is good because, verse 12, the Lord's favor rests on those who are righteous. And notice how Peter highlights it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God will bless believers with the promised eternal inheritance. He will hear their prayers, letting us see that they are his children. His eyes observe what is taking place in their life. He's concerned about them. But notice this opposition that Peter highlights against those who do not do righteousness. The face of the Lord is against those who do unrighteousness. It doesn't go unnoticed. God pays very careful attention to it. And the very psalm that Peter has quoted tells us what happens to them in verse 16. God cuts off the memory of them from the earth. If you're not a Christian, the Scripture tells us that those outside of God's favor will be judged. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. Believe in Christ. Trust in Christ. And be saved. If I'm honest, I'm still recovering from trying to earn God's favor. It affects my life in a lot of ways. It affects my parenting, my work, my recreation. But I've gotten better as I've grown in my understanding of the virtues in this passage and let them impact my relationships in this life with people inside the church and those who are outside of the church as an heir of blessing, being reminded that the Lord's favor rests on the righteous, not because of what they do, but because of what Christ has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would help us to trust afresh in the promises of the scripture, that you see, that you hear, that you are paying very careful attention to all of the details of our lives, that one day you will make all wrong things right and you will judge. 
And as a result of that, we pray that you would help us today, for those of us who are Christians in this room, to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator, to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. And Father, we pray for those who are here today who are not yet believers, that today they would entrust themselves to you by faith, that they would come to Christ, that they would believe the truth of the gospel, that they would be born again by the Spirit of Christ. As we remind ourselves of this very simple truth, the Lord's favor rests on the righteous and their relationships with those inside the church and their relationships with those outside of the church because they are heirs of blessing eternal life. Amen.